So the Lord has brought us to the progress of redemption in the book of the Song of Solomon. This will likely be uh, a sermon that perhaps will be a bit difficult, maybe in some ways, uh, but nonetheless, it is uh, the sweetness of the Word of God. And so, it seems fitting that as we by the grace of God, sweep through his word that we, of course, would look to the Song of Solomon in, in order here. And what we have is, uh, in this passage that was read to you, we have the glories of the single most important wedding for one drawn away from many lesser relationships by the striking inner and outer beauty of one woman among thousands. If anyone had experienced the beauty and some perhaps surface aspects of a relationship with women, it would be Solomon. But here we have, by the pen of none other than the Holy Spirit, a sweet proclamation of the wise experiential addition that Solomon makes to what the Lord has set aside as a sweet relationship between husband and wife. You can look here at 3, 6 through 11, and while you should anticipate that the glories of the bride are even more striking than that of the groom here that are described, nonetheless, in comparison to all of the glories of Solomon coming in on this uh, litter carried by mighty fighting men, we see a beautiful, beautiful wedding. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the rough-hewn fisherman used mightily of God wasn't kidding. When God said through him, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. I have historically preferred and appreciated through the years the, the European commentators in the Old Testament, Kyle and Delich. They're faithful, they're conservative. And Kyle and Delich say in their commentary written hundreds of years ago that not since the beginning of the 19th century has anyone, anyone of stature, viewed the Song of Solomon as anything other than a love poem. So I will not be for you attempting to allegorize the Song of Solomon for it to look like Jesus is my girlfriend because that's not what's happening in the Song of Solomon. And so it's an important idea uh, that we, we should, I think, appreciate. Uh, but it's also, uh, I will say, while it is an allegory, it is in some ways typology. And what I mean by that is this idea that even for those who will never marry even for those who will never marry, we have set before us in the Song of Solomon the beauty of relationship that surely will come to its ultimate fulfillment not in marriage, in the new heaven, in the new earth. So what we have before us in the Song is something that is absolutely beautiful. 
We have this absolutely beautiful, intimate relationship between one man and one woman. And it should surely be for us and give to us a longing for that which in heaven will be eternal bliss. So in that way, it certainly is typographical and it is appropriate for us to think of it that way. But nonetheless, the Song of Solomon is a picture of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. It is a poem of marital bliss. Turns out the Lord has something to say about marital intimacy. It should strike you as rather odd that the Catholic Church, who establishes Peter as its head and demands that their leaders not marry, Peter had a wife. (laughs) Peter had a wife. And we also see that Peter understood that the Lord gives wisdom even regarding marital intimacy. Let's look at some of the passages of Scripture here. First, we see that marital intimacy is designed to be fulfilling by God in the context of marriage. In the context of marriage. And we have nothing less than that here in this book, the Song of Solomon. It's delightful. Verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2, May He kiss me with the kisses of His mouth, for your love is better than wine. Chapter 4, verse 10, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride! How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Now, the beautiful woman is not Solomon's sister. Okay, That's simply a reference to, to her in this way. We also see an appreciation of physical beauty. Chapter 1, verse 15, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. And so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. Marital intimacy is designed by God to be satisfying. Chapter 4, verse 11, Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Marital intimacy is designed to be affectionate. Chapter 3, verse 6, What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant. Chapter 6, verse 10, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. You see in the song, uh, uh, no doubt, a a struggle in a sense to describe the splendor uh, and the beauty of marital bliss here. We see that in these passages. The book is about exclusive married love. It is possible that Even in evangelicalism, you have seen uh, perhaps that some would downplay the physical and imply that our spiritual lives are in fact uh, uh, the only thing that is important. But the Bible and Christianity do not affirm the idea that the physical is bad and that the spiritual is good. That was an idea that was pretty durable for a long time in Christendom, but nonetheless it should be roundly rejected. The book speaks to and brings satisfaction in that for which we were created. Relationship. 
In the song, there's, there's a lot of longing. But it's not longing that is depressive. It's longing with the grand expectation of fulfillment. And that's another important aspect of our lives as we anticipate uh, heaven, right? Is that we, we should be growing in our affections for the things of heaven and also for heaven itself. In the book, ironically, true romance and intimacy vanish when everything becomes sensual. The book has much sensuality in it. Much to see, much to feel, much to taste and touch. All of these things are in the book. There, by design, it's ideal. The ideal of marital intimacy is right here in the Song of Solomon. But what we see is, it isn't exclusively that. It isn't exclusively sensory. And that's an important idea. Because our lives, we recognize that our senses, to enjoy them more fully, we can't only have the sensory. For instance, you've certainly driven by a car that had a booming bass. And when your ears are pounded with that, it's hard for you to appreciate the beauty of music. If your fingertips are all calloused, it's very hard for you to feel the contours of smooth surfaces. And so we understand that God has designed us not only uh, to enjoy the sensory, but there are aspects to our enjoyment of the sensory that aren't, in fact, about our senses. The beauty of God-intended marital intimacy is here presented in the splendor of a love poem. Immersed in the flourishing joy, the reader is also brought to long for this relational joy and to recognize the distance between the ideal and his own situation. In the Proverbs, which is also wisdom literature, we have in the Proverbs often good contrasted with bad. We have righteousness contrasted with unrighteousness. Uh, We see it's important that we understand the biblical opposites of things because they're not always intuitive. You might, for instance, uh, think that the biblical opposite of saying ugly things is to not say anything. But that isn't the biblical opposite of saying unkind things. The biblical opposite is to speak the truth in love. Right, And so we have to transition from one to the other. When you look at the Song of Solomon, what you have presented isn't really the good and the bad, but it's all of the beauty of the intimacy of an ideal marriage. And from that, as we see, certainly we're inclined to understand, I wish that I could enjoy that in my marriage. How, how can I get there? And it is for us certainly a goal, right, for us. It sets before us that which the Lord has designed for us to enjoy, not only in this life, but of course in a more beautiful form in heaven. That doesn't include, obviously, marriage and the intimate aspects presented in the song. The spiritual end of this relationship is found in that perfect relationship we have with each other and with God in heaven. 
and the sexual relationship between husband and wife. It is appropriate that we see its ideal here in the song, but also that we understand that it is a primer for us as we anticipate the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. The point is, in an imperfect world, tainted by the sinfulness of humanity, humanity can enjoy great heights and depths of relational joy. Surely the joys of heaven will be immeasurably greater, and there will be no marriage in heaven. These blessings will be ours in ways we've not imagined. Our senses will be bursting with delight over something far greater than sexual intimacy. Think of it. Think about the way that our Creator in heaven is going to draw us into this delightful flourishing in the new heavens and the new earth. Even in its sensory aspects will be things that we really can't even imagine, I expect. And so it should be for us a longing for that day and a recognition that how we can also enjoy that in our marriages as well and reflections of it in our other relationships. Now I'd like to draw your attention a little bit to the storyline here of the poem. So it's eight chapters. The poem is really pretty short. Uh, and, and so it might surprise you about the storyline. The storyline is really not unlike a Cinderella story. You have in it a country maiden of a humble home who's gained the attention of Solomon with a love that has drawn him away from the empty sensuality of polygamy and ultimately restored to him the primitive idea of marriage as described in Genesis 3. Now, when you consider all of Solomon's exploits, all of the wives and concubines that he had, it likely is shocking to you that the Lord is using him to present to us the ideal. But he has seen much counterfeit. Right? And so he presents to us the beautiful ideal. And when I use the term primitive, the reference isn't to something uh, that is less than perfect. But it is really a reference to this idea that it is untarnished. Uh, We have this reflection given to us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The beauty and the innocency of Adam and Eve. And what, what Solomon is displaying for us is a return back to those days. And that's the idea that he's enjoying in this marriage. So Solomon with a love that's drawn him away from the empty sensuality of polygamy and ultimately restored to him the primitive idea of marriage as described in Genesis 3. Now, if we were just to look with a bird's eye view at the, at the entire poem here, and you can flip through, perhaps your Bible has some, uh, has some title headlines or whatnot. What we see uh, really is five different uh, portions of the book here, chapters one, one, two to two, seven. The woman's desire for her beloved. Chapter two, eight to three, five. The approach of her beloved. Chapter three, six to five, eight. The temporary loss of her beloved. Five, nine to eight, four. The reunion of the lovers. 
in 8, 5 to 14, the consummation of a beautiful marriage. The range of thinking of the bride is not that of a king's daughter, but of a rustic maiden. And she's a stranger to the daughters of Jerusalem. Not because she's a foreigner, but because she's from the country. Now, as I said, this, this is a little bit of a Cinderella story in the, in the Song of Solomon here. So what we have is the king, no less than likely among the most glorious kings of all the earth, that has said in this love poem that she is one of a thousand. And what he means by that isn't that she's numbered in similarity with all the others, but that she is the one. She's the one. This country maiden who isn't unintelligent, but she's innocent. She has a natural beauty that God has given her. She has a noble spirit as displayed in the book. So what we see here is that this this king who enjoys all of the regal majesty of his office has been drawn and is, again, ideally putting away all that he has ever known of relations with women because she is the one. She has drawn him away. She has shown him that which is the ideal. Not merely in a beautiful woman, beautiful on the inside and in the out, but in this relationship that is possible as the ideal. So we see that here. The childlike simplicity, the rural character of her descriptions reveal her joy in the open fields and the quiet life of her village home. Colin Delich, as I referenced earlier, Solomon is here. He says, in loving or they say, in loving fellowship with a woman he had not found among a thousand. That which drew her to him is not her beauty alone, but her beauty that adorned a noble soul. She's a model of devotion. She's a model of simplicity. Now, it's important that we understand the idea of simplicity here. That doesn't mean that she struggles with arithmetic. What that means is she is an individual of integrity. She is not complicit or manipulative. She doesn't have secret ideas that she doesn't reveal. She doesn't have deceitful notions that she maneuvers so that she can have her own way. That's the simplicity of this beautiful one. And so we see that here, and that's the idea that Kyle and Delich are getting at. She has an unaffected modesty. She's an individual of moral purity. And she's one of frank prudence. Beyond her striking beauty lies also her virtues, which make her the gentlest and noblest of women. While you may not think of the Proverbs 31 woman in the Song of Solomon, it is appropriate that you do. 
If you think of the Proverbs 31 woman as this sort of matronly, uh, kind of uh, perhaps stern, unattractive business individual, then you would have a very poor understanding of what God is revealing in Proverbs 31. We appreciate and God has given to us physical beauty as well as spiritual beauty. And we see that here in her. Her words and her silence we see in the poem. She knows when to speak and what to say. But she also knows when to be silent. The song is, of course, much more about the character of the woman than it is the character of the man. But we have both here. We see in the song her doing and her suffering, her enjoyment and her self-denial, her conduct as one engaged as a bride and as a wife. We have insight in the song to the way she treats her mother and siblings, and that gives the impression that her physical beauty has adorned a beautiful soul. It is appropriate that we look to her as a form of an ideal woman and wife. As we see, again, the nobility of her soul, the importance that she places on that. Much of what complicates and cheapens married love are the complexities of, for instance, sinful manipulation. It is true, when two people get married, you put two sinners together. Two sinners that have different, perhaps, levels of self-denial, of self-centeredness, of self-absorption. They place their own affections in the way of what should be. There's also the insistence that true intimacy is not the fruit of an abiding non-sexual love. What I'm saying is this. Physical intimacy is designed to be the fruit of a habit of non-sexual affection. This is an important idea. And this is something that is struggled with much in our day. And so we, we must create the habits that would make the beauty of intimacy become the fruit of a beautiful habit of non-sexual love. We have also that which complicates and cheapens married life, the guarded self-absorption that knows nothing of the unashamed nature of Adam and Eve in the garden. What you have in the song is playful friendship, the welcoming acceptance, the unimpeded giving of one to another, only possible with the depth of love that often seems elusive. Those of you that are married have certainly enjoyed aspects of this, but you've also found yourself desiring it when it isn't there. And it's hard for us to see that it isn't something that's merely spontaneous, but it's a process that has means. How can I enjoy this other, right? 
by investing myself in that which is good and right and true. As we gaze upon the splendor of this divine ideal, it's reasonable that we see a window into our own situation. What are the impediments of this marital bliss? What keeps us from the kind of joy that we see in the song? It's not because you're not a supermodel. It's not because you're ready to be on Muscle Magazine. That's not it. There is, there is a recognition of the importance of the physical. Yes, it's there. And we can affirm that for what it is. There's discipline of the body as well as the soul. And both of those things are important. But neither of them are a God. But as we gaze upon the splendor, again, it's reasonable that we see a window to our own situation. These things that keep us from the ideal. One is the inability to distinguish dominion from domination. The inability to distinguish dominion from domination. Dominion is beautiful. Domination is tyrannical. Men, I'm speaking to you. What's the difference? Well, you can likely see it in the facial expressions and the responses that wife and children have to you. Are you involved in domination? Are you a little dictator? Or are you interested in biblical dominion that is sweet and kindly and persuasive and has as its core the Word of God and has as its mission the mission of God, not your own petty preferences or demands. And so this is an important idea. The inability to distinguish between dominion and domination regarding our own marriages. Secondly, insistence on intimacy without involving oneself in the habits that produce its fruit. This is also associated with the distinction between dominion and domination. You say, I can make demands. You go right ahead. But when you do, you're robbing yourself and your marital partner from that which is beautiful. And so this is an important idea. Thirdly, separation of intimacy from a real relationship. Hear me. What do you desire? Have you set as your goal relational, deep friendship? with your marriage partner. Fourthly, refusal to maintain discipline of the mind and body. Do you give your mind complete freedom to go where it will? You've seen those little t-shirts that say, I do what the voices in my head tell me? It's 
bad advice. We must discipline our minds. We must think about that which is right and true and good. In order to do that, we have to put into our minds the truth of God. And when we do that, that which is wicked and evil will depart. Fifthly, a saturation of sexual impurities. Yes, our culture is absolutely saturated with flesh, with sexual innuendo, with all kinds. You can't even buy toothpaste these days without this kind of sexual immorality, these sorts of images and so forth that would draw your mind away from the place that it needs to be. We must be a people who guard our minds in this way. It takes great effort. Sixthly, there's a refusal to repent not only of the fruit of sin, but of those habits that produce sinful fruit. We've mentioned this before regarding our own repentance. Right? We're inclined to repent of sin events, but we're not inclined to repent of the habits that produce the sin events. You see, throw bad fruit away, yes. Chop the tree down, and you'll not have bad fruit anymore. Plant a good tree in its place. That's the idea that we're getting at. Lastly, there's a refusal to do the hard relational work. And there's, of course, the inclined insistence that the issue lies with the other. My father always told me it takes two to tango. And what he meant by that was, when there are problems, it often involves both of you. And so... That is, while we're inclined to project the issue on others, the reality is is the person that we can really affect and change is ourselves by the glory of God. The relationship of the lovers in the Song of Solomon should be to us a guide for the true joys of married love, something we should admit we only approach, and often from afar. We can only enter enter into the true joys of marriage and the physical aspect of these joys when we abide by God's principles as a believer. The Song of Solomon is a story about marital bliss. Apparently the old rabbis said that you should only study the book when you're over the age of 30. As you read through it, you might understand why. I've got a few questions that I think are appropriate as we think about our relationships. Particularly your marriage. How many people have you discouraged with your marriage? If your marriage doesn't present 
something that can at least be a reflection of the ideal. You need to realize that there are people around you that have decided not to marry because of your marriage. Have you considered that? Have you, have you repented of that? Have you thought about the ways that your marriage impacts the marriages of others? in a negative way or in a positive way. The reality is, can you recover? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes, you can. God takes dead men and gives them life. He takes dead marriages and gives them life. We should see that and we should long for that and see that it is absolutely possible today. How many people reject marriage because of your marriage? What do your children think of marriage? Yeah, I don't think I really want to do that. Seem pretty rough with mom and dad. Or, do they see in your marriage something that's beautiful? Something that is imperfect, but yet something that they can truly desire as a sweet picture of Christ's love for the church, of a loving Heavenly Father, of that for which God has made us, that we might involve ourselves in raising up God followers. What do the people around you think of children? It's uncomfortable sometimes, right? All children aren't a blessing. They become a blessing by the sweating work of your brow, by the grace of God. Just as in our marriages, the same is true of our children and our families. When people look at your children, do they want children? That's a very important question to ask. How are you doing with that? Again, the Apostle Peter said in his second letter that his divine power has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. That means the raising of children and the delighting yourself in your marriage. These are important notions. What do people think of your home? What's the, what's the aroma of your home? What is it like there? These, these can be very hard things to think about. But the reality is, is, is that God has made us a people that we alone, by the grace of God, can enjoy the sweetness of marital bliss. We alone, by the grace of God, can enjoy the depth of relationship that isn't about marriage. Our culture cannot understand the relationship, for instance, between David and Nathan. They cannot understand that. They cannot understand the relationship between David and Jonathan. They must place in that place some sort of perversion of sexuality when they cannot understand the relational depth. They have no story for that. No memory of that. No understanding of that. 
But when we look at the song, we see what is possible in marital bliss, and we should absolutely understand that in that there is certainly there is certainly in that a differentiation, if you will, but nonetheless something that we can integrate and see for ourselves the beauty of friendship. The beauty of friendship. We must be friends. That's the expression. Brothers, sisters in Christ. Think about what people think of your own marriage. All of us have work to do here. But we need to recognize that our own sinfulness in it, God has designed, He has designed our Creator, the Master of the universe, the Father of all things, He has designed it so that you cannot and will not enjoy a relationship until you continually step into the faithfulness of God. You'll you'll not have it. You'll not enjoy that. You'll not enjoy one another. You'll not enjoy your children if you refuse to discipline them. You'll not enjoy anything about your relationships unless we step into it, albeit imperfectly, the ways that God has given to us in His Word. There's a warning also in the song for parents who would guide their children to this relational bliss. There's a most significant repetition in 2.7, in 3.5, and in 8.4. the same words. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Some of you think it's cute to ask little children who they like. I'm telling you now, it's a bad idea. Okay, it's a bad idea because what you're doing is you're stirring up things that they can do nothing about except be frustrated. Why not cultivate the sweetness of innocency in little children. Yes, you must be the first to tell them the truth about intimacy. And that often is a run, is it not? To get to them before someone else does. I understand that, okay? But can we do it in such a way to protect their minds, to give them the sweet delight in the innocency in the innocency of children, in the simplicity of growing up without being bombarded with these kinds of burdens that they cannot carry, just as Corey Ten Boom's father explained to her as she asked her father the hard questions. Papa Ten Boom said this. He said, "You can't carry this bag." I'll carry it for you until you're ready. And so parents, we must understand and protect our children with the truth about when it is that they're ready to hear and to understand this. I think that my Sunday school teacher in college was very, very wise. In our men's class, he told us this. He said, don't tell her you love her until you've got a ring in your pocket. An important idea as we think about 
the sweetness, the glories of marital bliss in their proper perspective. You say, why? 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 Turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. I'll tell you why. Because the wise man says this. He says, love is as strong as death. Love is as strong as death. Is there a more powerful force than sexual perversion and immorality in our culture? That's the idea. You want to talk about playing with matches around gasoline? This is the idea. Everything in its proper place. God has given to us the ideal in His Word. Will we be a people who take to heart what it is that He's telling us? And if we do, then we'll also be the people who enjoy the sweet benefits of faithfulness. You know your own sins that have cut away at the joys of your relationships. You can either cut away or you can fertilize. It's important that we think of our relationships. I often do as the Lord does. He places them in the terms of a beautiful tree. And as I think of a tree, I recognize that I can either chop it or I can fertilize it. We're not talking about pruning. This is not pruning. You can chop a tree or you can fertilize it. And so men, every action, every word, ladies, the things you say, the things you do, recognize that you are either taking an axe to the tree of your relationship or you're fertilizing the tree. Everything that you do is in one of those two categories. Children, hear me. You understand this language about a tree and about fertilizing and caring for it. Your urgent attention to these matters impacts the kingdom of God every day. And in a mysterious passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we see this mystery when the the Apostle Paul, again, is speaking to us about husbands and wives and about Christ and the church. And you want to talk about people's reflection of the Lord Jesus? Let them look at your marriage and you will be showing them what you think of Christ. Let's pray.